Hello and welcome to Dialogue and Debate with Cumberland Lodge. My name is Ed Newell, I'm the Chief Executive of Cumberland Lodge. It's very good to welcome you today. I'm delighted to be chairing this opening webinar of our four-part mini-series on issues of race and justice in policing, education, culture sector and wider society. And today we're pleased to welcome three guests uh, working on issues of race and justice to consider the significance of Black Lives Matter movement in the UK. So it's very good to welcome human rights lawyer Dexter Diaz, QC, Dr. Saraya Jivraj, who's reader in law uh, and, and social justice at the University of Kent, and Karen Wilson, the assistant chief constable for Lincolnshire. Welcome to you all. Hi, thanks Ed, really appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you here. And um, in the discussions that we're gonna be having Today, we're going to be drawing on insights and recommendations from the 2019 Cumberland Lodge report, Race in Britain, Inequality, Identity and Belonging. And we produce this in partnership with our friends at the Runnymede Trust. If you're interested in this report, it's available to download from the Cumberland Lodge website on our read, watch, listen section. And to those of you who are watching this morning, do please get involved and you can submit any questions you have to put to the panel as we go along. And you can su um, submit questions via the Q&A function if you're watching live on Zoom or by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge or by commenting on our Facebook live stream. But we'll go straight into our discussion now with our panelists. I'm going to start with Kerim by asking uh, you a question. Kerim, what does Black Lives Matter to you? And do you think that the Black Lives Matter campaign with its strong anti-police agenda in the United States is an appropriate catalyst for discussion and debate in the UK? Um, thanks, Ed. And um, starting off with quite a big topic there. Um, the, the Black Lives Matter campaign in the US and the anti-police sentiment has trickled across to some degree across to the UK and it has really put the focus on the, the communities and the relationships with policing here. But it is quite a different style of policing that we have here. So it's, although if any policing organisation across the world are tainted with um, the, the racism labels, etc., that have been tainted across in, in the US, it does affect us all here in the UK as well, because we do tend to think of ourselves as one big family. Um, however, policing in the UK <laughs> is completely different to how it's um, managed in the US. Um, we're more open to scrutiny, to, um, to transparency. So all of the data sets that we have um, are scrutinized and they're there for anybody to, to look at and to oversee. So for instance, deaths in custody or assaults um, on police officers or police assaults on members of the public, much more open to scrutiny here in the UK. And we work with our communities here um, in a different way to how they, they police in the US. So it is a different connotation in terms of that racism uh, within policing. However, it has opened the debate for us um, in terms of how, how do we actually communicate and police our societies and are we really together with our communities <laughs> or are there some injustices there that we should really sit up and take notice of and address in a different way to how we're doing it now? 
sometimes there's a little bit of um, I do feel that there's a bit of apathy towards the the community cohesion aspects that I grew up with 10, 20 years ago in policing. And that seems to have taken the back seat quite a bit over the last several years. Um, so it is different and it is legitimate to ask those questions here. But um, let's not confuse the styles of policing that we have here in the UK to that in the US. Thank you very much. We're going to be exploring that uh, issue in more detail in one of our uh, later um, webinars, but it's good to have that perspective right from the outset. So thank you, Karen. Moving on now to Dexter, an opening question for you relates yeah. to the report that Cumberland Lodge produced with the Running Mead Trust uh, last year. One of the things that it said, um, which is that um, there seems to have been uh, through changes in social norms and increased legal protection, a decline in overt racism over the years, but yet structural, institutional, and particularly unconscious racism seems to persist. I wonder why you think that persistence is there. How long have we got, Ed? I mean, <laughs> as long as you like. Step into my office, yeah. Um, look, I agree with the broad principle to some extent, but I want to challenge that. Yeah. And I'd like to come back on a couple of things, Karen, very helpful. And it, it's uh, a real privilege to be with all of you. I'm grateful to have uh, this opportunity to speak with you all. But look, let, let's try to understand what it is. There is a massive distinction between um, implicit and explicit racism. Now, I'm... I would have thought a good way to think about it is that the bigotry, the deliberate acts of conscious um, racial discrimination might be, and it's just um, uh, approximation, might be something of the order of 10% of what really happens, maybe even less than that. The real problem is what, uh, if it's an iceberg, lies below the waterline, and that is implicit bias and institutional structural racism. Now on the point about, well, explicit racism seems to have declined. What is their data set about that? Because purely from um, a personal anecdotal um, point of view, I've been racially abused more in the last two or three years than I have in the last couple of decades. And I think there is a material difference in what's happening between what happened um, after the turn of the millennium and in the last decade. And, you know, uh, very uh, important and I think influential uh, social analysts and critics like uh, Francis Fukuyama, who famously wrote about the end of history um, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, and the triumph of liberal values has reconsidered it and said, look, we have to understand the historical moment and we have to understand how with the turn towards populism and what has caused it, you are going to get more racial and racialized incidents. And that is certainly my experience personally. It's what I see in the courts, the amount of racially aggravated offenses. Uh, they, they are increasingly coming in front of the courts, partly is because we take it more seriously, but I'm, I am convinced that it is also because 
of uh, historical and global conditions. Can I just, just briefly go back to what Karen said? I think it's a really important point. There are some people, I think there's a small section of people who um, use the Black Lives Matter umbrella in order to attack the police and they have their own agendas. And that is not something we should have any truck with. We need to have a properly functioning, accountable, democratic police force. What the real problem is, in my view, is uh, not even racist policing. There are, as even Lord Scarman found in the aftermath of Brixton, there are some bad apples. There are some racist police officers, but it's a tiny, tiny percentage. That is not the issue. The issue is racialized policing. And by, by that, I mean, we only get really the police force we deserve. The police force is like all the other institutions of, the, of state, like judges, like the bar, like everything else. If we are operating in a society that still has highly racialized views and social norms, we cannot expect the police to be immune from that. And so the real concern is racialized policing. And that's about perceptions, it's about attitudes, and then all of those things with structural factors produce and reproduce the outcomes, like black people being nine times more likely to be stopped and searched, black children being six times more likely to be imprisoned, black women twice as likely to be imprisoned for drugs offenses as white women, and the use of tasers, 7.7% uh, times more likely to be used on black people. So you've got structure, I think really structural issues that are creating these problems. And I'd be really interested to hear what uh, Karen and Soraya think about that because there's a lot of work that's going on. And there's a lot of work. I was chair of the Bar's Equality, Diversity and in Inclusivity uh, Committee for years. Um, the training committee and I lectured members of the bar, um, myself, after court with, you know, 30, 40, 50 barristers, almost all of them white, talking about these issues. And I think that things are changing. They're not changing as fast as we would like, but there is an enormous amount of work to do. And one only has to look, I would say, a good companion report to the Cumberland Lodge report is, uh, for people who are interested, is read David Lammy. <clears throat> so if you read the Lammy report about uh, racial disproportion in the criminal justice system, you will get a very uh, good indication of how these uh, racialized outcomes are produced and reproduced. Anyway, I'm gonna stop there, but just a few thoughts about that. That's, that's really helpful, Dexter, particularly as we've got a a seminar that's going to drill down more deeply on policing issues. It's really helpful yeah. to have that perspective. Um, so, Ryan, I just want to um, to, to uh, ask you a slightly different question, um, which is that discrimination and inequality are quite multifaceted issues, and they relate uh, to people of different genders, sexualities, ages, abilities, as well as race. So, I wonder whether you might just be able to tease out for us what are the distinct, what's distinctive about racial discrimination and related inequalities. And what are the common factors in all forms of discrimination and inequalities that we need to be addressing? Well, I think like Dexter, you know, <laughs> how long have we got? Yeah. Um, 
Yes, uh, I, th I think it's a good question in the sense that it's one that's really confusing for a lot of people. Um, and of course, um, with the um, bringing in of the Equality Act uh, in 2010, where all the different strands of uh, anti-discrimination protected characteristics, as we refer to them, were brought together under one legislative uh, umbrella, whereas before, of course, we'd had separate pieces of legislation that was meant to um, or part of the impetus for that was meant to be to facilitate bringing what we call uh, an intersectional approach. So um, that terminology is most um, frequently associated with uh, the American lawyer, uh, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, where she in particular talks about um, how um, into how different acts how different aspects of discrimination can come together and interlock um, uh, and thinking about it as a kind of an axis and how they how they cross over so intersect and she's been very uh, vocal about um, the Black Lives Matter movement in America and in particular how it impacts on black women um, and you know she she she's does this wonderful TED talk and I'd recommend it to anyone who's interested where, you know, she reads out the names of uh, black men who uh, have been um, murdered by the police and then women and you see how many people would have heard about the women as opposed to men and that's a really kind of, so she asks people to stand up and then when they've heard the name to sit down and it's a really visual way to kind of grasp the extent to which we don't know about how these uh, different forms of discrimination affect black women, as Dexter said as well, um, in relation to uh, imprisonment, but also socioeconomically, uh, in relation to poverty. Um, you know, so it's re it's it's it, it's rooted very deeply in the fabric of our society. And one, just to give a kind of concrete example of. <clears throat> excuse me, my own students, because I um, have been academic lead for uh, a decolonizing the university project at my university. Um, and, and that's been facilitating and empowering working with students to really um, bring their voice across about what their experiences are on campus, in the classroom, but also more broadly in society as it uh, impacts their journey at university and in particular their attainment because another area which uh, there's massive area of disparity is of course attainment in degree um, and that varies across different uh, minority groups and um, so the issue that they've been really bringing forward is around uh, disability and race um, and then again compounded by gender and sexuality um, so we really need to be careful around this area, not kind of do, uh, you know, have a very bland, simplistic, reductive, um, analog analogous kind of approach, but actually look at the detail of uh, what's happening in different arenas and listen to people's voices. And again, you know, Dexter mentioned uh, the Scarman report, he mentioned the uh, Lamy report, and of course, in between then, we had the McPherson report. We've had 
loads of reports. We've now got your wonderful report from 2019. <laughs> you know, we've, we, we are reported out and the students are reported out and the, the people who are protesting in, in Britain as well as the US and, and globally are sick of reports. They want action. And, um, but that action is not knee jerk action, right? It has to be considered action. Um, and one of the things that I really, one of the points I really liked in the report was that there's a lot of focus on the minorities uh, and the discrimination and not very much focus on, you know, um, the systemic racism, the racialization that Dexter's talking about, that which, which forms part of the fabric and the norms of society, including policing and education and elsewhere, you know, the health service, which has really kind of come to the fore in the current pandemic context. And really focus needs to be on, you know, moved and shifted to that. And in a way to actually uh, facilitate enacting some of the recommendations from those reports yeah, yeah. and asking why we haven't really. Thank you very much indeed. I think that something we are very conscious of at Cumberland Lodge is, is not being reported out and, and moving from reports to actions, which is something we're trying to do uh, with this particular report um, because we feel there's some practical things that we can do on that um, to take things forward. Just before I ask the next question, I just want to remind everyone that if you want to submit a, uh, submit a question, you can do so using the Q&A function on our Zoom uh, live stream or by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge or by commenting on our live uh, stream on Facebook. One of the things that we did talk about in the report, and, and it's something that we try to facilitate at Cumberland Lodge, is dialogue and bringing people from different perspectives, different backgrounds together. And I'm wondering whether this is the approach for any action or should underlie action actually to get people together in a safe, where, in an environment where they feel safe and comfortable to actually start to get to know people. And I'm wondering whether anyone's had any, been involved in any um, community related activity where they've actually seen positive results um, because of, of, of bringing people together. I open that up to any of uh, and the panelists. Yeah, carry on. Um, certainly in Lincolnshire, this is one of the things that we're trying to do with our equalities charity, Just Lincolnshire, is to open up and have safe spaces to have the conversations that we're, we're having today, but within those communities, but being led not by one of the institutions, because there's always an agenda, whether it's a policing agenda, um, education agenda, et cetera, but to be led from the ground up to invite those institutions to come in and have the debates in a safe way. Because I, I think over the years, and as Dexter mentioned, um, overt racism has gone um, really low levels now. But what we do have is that institutionalized racism but then this also equates to people not wanting to have the conversation. Yeah. And so largely the conversations don't happen. They're, they're happening about other inequalities, about adverse childhood experiences or disability um, or gender, et cetera. <clears throat> Those inequalities around race are not happening the way that they were a couple of decades ago. And so have no safe spaces to have the conversations and to probe what actually goes on and bringing different people together is really important. 
but I think in in terms of ourselves um, from uh, as a person of colour is about allowing people to have those conversations and inviting people in to have the conversations with me and with others as well. We've got a responsibility there. Yeah. As, as um, a younger me, if somebody would asked me, where do I come from? And I would have been really sarcastic and said, Jarrow or South Shields, well, where do you really mean? And instead of putting up those barriers, trying to change the terminology and the language to say, do you mean where do I physically come from in terms of where was I brought up or where's my heritage? And just allowing people to have the conversations in a different way without feeling as if they're going to be um, battened down by using the wrong language or the wrong words. Yeah. Ed, could I, could I jump in? I, 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 I totally agree. Uh, with what Karen says. Can I just give you a bit of my own direct experience? And, I, and in fact, the reason I'm here and talking today, I think, uh, is because I gave a TED talk um, about speaking out about racism a couple of weeks ago. And I think, uh, Ed, one of your colleagues, uh, Jane, Jane Furness, saw it and reached out to me. So hi, Jane, and thank you for that. Uh, you're, you're responsible for this, Jane, actually. Um, but. You know, so what is interesting, I think, Karen, you know, you're right to talk about safe spaces, because what happened to me was by saying something as radical and outrageous as it's time to speak out about racism. The talk kind of went, they launched it at TED's central channel, I think you called it at Seattle, picked it up, it's a local TED talk in the UK, and it went kind of viral overnight, and there was a huge racist backlash, incredible racism directed against me, and directed uh, against some of the people, victims of racial um, and state violence who I'd spoken about uh, in the talk. Now, I had a... a you know, I didn't know what quite what to do. And here I am, you know, someone who is relatively successful professional, Queen's Council, et cetera, et cetera, pretty confident normally. And the experience of racism has this deeply distressing and unsettling effect. And I didn't know what to do. Should I be quiet about it? Should I say something? And what I did was I thought, you know what? I'm sick of it. And I spoke out about it. I put something, I tweeted what had happened. And I could not have anticipated the response. I received hundreds and hundreds of tweets and messages and comments from BAME people in the UK, but across the world, who started talking about their experience. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about how, and the theme that emerged for me was that how we kind of suffer it in silence. And there's this, tremendous sense of isolation. And also, I think I don't know what uh, my other colleagues think about this, but there's also this interesting sense of shame as well, that somehow you've provoked this response and it's somehow you're at fault and responsible. And we need to have safe spaces in which, firstly, I think it operates on different levels. Firstly, people who have experienced racial abuse or racial violence or <clears throat> racialized outcomes, which are adverse because of color, can talk and be supported and be honest. But then I think the next phase, once we do have 
uh, proper support and safeguarding. I think the next phase is to have these necessary conversations and to have, and um, in inverted commas, white people who contacted me, having followed the Twitter thread, um, were shocked. They just could not believe just how extensive um, and serious and debilitating this was. And so I think for me, the time has come where we do have these honest conversations. What worries me, um, given that the focus is on institutional and structural racism and violence, what worries me, so we've got a um, cross-governmental commission that's been authorised by the Prime Minister. The person he has appointed to head that commission is someone who thinks that uh, institutional racism is more, quote, a perception than a reality. And it's that kind of gaslighting, I think, that is going to be deeply, deeply damaging. We've got to face these truths. We can't pretend they don't happen. All you need to do, you don't need to be an expert like uh, Soraya, a, an academic. You don't need to be uh, a very eminent uh, serving police officer like Karen, you just need to look at the reports that people have mentioned, and the evidence is there. The question is not whether um, we need whether we understand what the outcomes are. The question is what we do about it, and that's a question of political will. And that comes from us having an honest conversation and saying, "Look, one of the main problems in our society is that this um, dominant narrative." of race, which by the way, doesn't exist as a scientific concept, uh, affects and shapes and colors so many of the outcomes right across society. Are we going to have, given our history of empire, given our history of immigration, of uh, racialized immigration control, racialized policing, the criminal justice system, are we going to have the courage to actually face that and say, we don't want that. And if we don't want that, let's do something about it. But otherwise, if we don't have the conversation that Karen was speaking about, our children are going to be in this place in 30 years and nothing will have changed. Thank you very much indeed, Dex. That's really, really good to hear that. And um, I just want to go down to Soraya to ask her about her experiences of having conversations with with, with students in particular, because clearly you, you have, and I wonder whether you've got any insights from those discussions you've been having. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, just to say from the outset, because we've been hearing the terminology of safe spaces, um, is that, you know, students, <laughs> I'm one of the very few people of color in my department, but actually my department, my law school is, um, extremely diverse compared to many. So that kind of gives you a sense of the situation. And actually the one, the, the quote that comes from one student that sticks in my mind is that uh, when there's so a student of color who saw uh, a member of staff who was a person of color and they said, oh my God, it was like seeing a unicorn. You know, it was magical and what that meant to them. And that gives you a kind of sense of, um, you know, what's kind of missing in various institutions, but particularly somewhere like a university, which is, uh, you know, meant to be a kind of 
open place of thinking, of debate, of learning. And yet, um, and I always say this to my colleagues, you know, as nicely as I can, but, you know, we're scholars, <laughs> we're meant to read. There's all these reports, there's all these explainers of the reports, there's all these podcasts of the reports, you know, there's all these reading lists and checklists, including ones that my, you know, my own students have put together for their teaching staff. And I'll put the link in the chat later. Um, you know, which is a step-by-step -step guide of how as a, as a white person, as an ally, whatever you want to, terminology you want to use, if you don't know where to start, um, this is, you know, this is an accessible way of, you can go about it. But the students, I mean, it's a bit, you know, there's this um, terminology that emerged from the Me Too movement. And that's it. That is, if, she, if a woman speaks about abuse, she suffered, then believe her. And that's the thing that's a real obstacle in having these conversations. So, you know, you can have panels with the, you know, say it's in a university context with the, the executive group and they will come and make themselves available in a sort of town hall scenario and open to questions. But, to, you know, does action actually result from that? And, you know, very often it doesn't. It just goes, it just becomes a talking shop. And quite frankly, students, younger people, you know, older people like myself are sick of it. You know, I grew up um, when the race, race rights in Brixton were happening. And, you know, I've now got teenage children and it, it is really very depressing that as a lawyer who's gone from practice to research to education, that there really has been a regression in many ways. In some ways as a student, it was the kind of peak uh, the time when, you know, the Equality Act was being campaigned for, I was part of that campaign. That was the kind of peak, I would say, um, where there was hope. And it really has um, regressed since then. And, and Dex is totally right when he says it's, you know, political will or, you know, management will, whoever it is that has the power um, without deferring it elsewhere. So if it's a university, you know, they're saying, oh, well, our hands are tied by the government. Um, and yes, to a certain extent, that's true. But, you know, a simple example is that there was, there's very little, despite the Equality Act and the duties that universities are under and all education institutions are under, to actually have a mechanism, simply a mechanism to report racism. I mean, how can that be? You know, how can that be? Where there's no space where students can go where they feel comfortable. It is only because they see me teaching public law um, in their first year. So all our students, we have a cohort of, you know, last year it was up to 700. And then when they get to my optional modules in their final year, they start really coming out and trusting me. So I've just written a piece actually with um, a colleague who's also a PhD student at my law school. And, you know, he really wanted to talk about the conditions that made it possible for us to run this decolonizing the curriculum and the, pro and the university project. And, you know, the, the key things that come out there are trust, courage, and silence. And silence there is much more kind of complicated in terms of being silenced, but also others who need to be silent for a change and listen and then act. So, you know, I'd say that the, yes, we need these conversations, but these conversations have to lead to something and they have to be 
predicated on certain conditions which need to be guaranteed because otherwise it's reinforcing of racialization by putting the pressure constantly on those who are you know marginalized to constantly do the solving thank you very much indeed um one more question for me before i then uh, pick up on some of the questions that are starting to come in now when you were talking um i was starting to think is there are there generational differences here? Something I've, I've done over the last few years has been to, to watch on YouTube the sorts of TV programmes I grew up with as a kid. And when I've been doing that, I've been absolutely horrified to see uh, some of the things, the attitudes that are being expressed, which clearly uh, helped to shape me as a person. And, um, and we've, to some extent, addressed those. Then, what you've been saying, particularly Dex, is, um, and now, now you, Sarah, about this regression, it sounds like we were making progress and then we've seemed to unleash something with populism that's exposed what's just hidden beneath the surface. Is that something which is particularly um, affecting people, I don't know, middle-aged upwards, um, there's hope that's coming through from the younger generation, or is this something that's persistent and just affects just affects everyone in society. Yeah, could I, could I jump in there about that? What we've got to do, it seems to me, is understand what are the causal mechanisms. Populism doesn't just come about because it's a preference and an inclination and a choice. It has been produced by very concrete historical conditions. Now, the fact that, and, you know, I'm, I was, you know, vulnerable to all of this as well. You know, I, I started off at the bar when there was someone called Margaret Thatcher, can you believe, who was prime minister. And I started off as a human rights lawyer because of the uh, a complete attack on civil liberties that the Thatcherite regime was unleashing. And part of the work that I did start off with was representing anti-apartheid activists. And you might remember there was a vigil outside uh, South Africa House in Trafalgar Square. And I, for the first year, 18 months, I represented uh, anti-apartheid activists as one of the main things I did. Because they very often they didn't get any legal aid, so I did that pro bono. And then Nelson Mandela was released in 1990, and that was a step forward. And then we had a Labour government in 97, and then Barack Obama was elected, and then he was re-elected. And then when I went to Harvard for my, uh, my sabbatical, they, they were talking about this post-racial world and that, you know, we've not only elected a black man, we've re-elected a black man. And I do think we were lulled into a slight false sense of security and complacency about all of this. But the fact that there has been a populist turn and you've got uh, a quasi-fascist, um, deeply racist, um, government in Hungary, who, people don't know, um, house migrant people in shipping containers. <clears throat> That's their policy. You've got uh, right-wing reaction right across Western Europe. You've got Trump, you've got Brexit. All of these come because of um, historical conditions. And I think we can trace it back to the great crash um, financially, 2008, you then have got uh, deindustrialization, post-industrialization, precarity, uncertainty of work, zero hours contracts. You've got huge population movements. A lot of my research is in sub-Saharan Africa. 
on human rights. And you can see not only people trying to move because of the problems there, you've got commu huge communities, countries on the move. So you've got changing complexions in communities in the global north. And as a result of all of that, you've got this reaction um, to try to foster a sense of identity amongst uh, the left behind white population. And what have they done? They've tried to re resurrect this nostalgic historical myth of a, a pure white nation. And so it doesn't happen by accident, Ed. And I think we need to understand historical conditions if we want to try to do something about it. Thank you. Karen. Can I just add to, to what Dexter said there about some of the feelings within um, the, the communities who are feeling left behind is not just against people of colour, but it's against, as, it, as um, Dexter's mentioned, about migrant communities yeah. um, coming over here. And we get lots from Eastern European communities within Lincolnshire. But people of colour that I know, my family and um, friends, have got just as um, divisive, racist attitudes towards mm -hmm. other migrant communities coming yeah. over. Um, and taking our jobs, yep. etc. So it's not just um, a white attitude which is prevalent in some of these communities. And I think some of it is that we've left communities behind and we haven't addressed some of those systemic inequalities in the working class communities, which have then manifested themselves into polarized views of the world. Thank you. I'm going to pick up a couple of questions now that have come in, and um, this is from Professor Ravinda Barn asking, I wonder if the panel could say what action is needed within the British criminal justice system to achieve justice for Black, Asian and other minority ethnic groups, policing, courts, probation, youth offending, etc. So... Um, I I can add a little bit. I did type there in case we didn't get to the question. Um, but one of the things that I've found and I was very surprised with is the local criminal justice boards and each area will have those, which will bring all of the criminal justice partners together to look at things strategically. Quite often don't have um, an element of understanding the diversity of the people who go through the criminal justice system and even in Lincolnshire, it wasn't prevalent there. It was a case of let's get all of the other things right, but that had been taken off their agenda. It's back on there now, thankfully. Um, but understanding all of that data and every step of the way, the decision-making in a person's journey needs to be examined to see where the unfairness lies, because that unfairness will no doubt be accumulative throughout every step of the way, whether it's a case of who reported it, whatever the issue is, and how the police responded to how courts have responded, how youth offending teams have responded, mm -hmm. and all of that accumulative effect turns out to be more injustice for um, persons of colour. Karen, is that, do you think that's just a, a Lincolnshire thing or do you think it's endemic across the system? Um, some criminal justice boards are much better than others, but there are a few criminal justice boards that I've been 
um, aware of that it's just not given the attention that it needs to have. Dexter, I'm sure you've got a perspective on this. I, I, I was trying to be patient, um, but um, I think that we can approach this, and I'm really grateful for the question. Um, I think we can approach this on two levels of analysis and adopt a, a micro level um, solution and a macro level solution. But whether we try to do it on an individual basis, and I, I've been involved in both, both, um, both levels, I suppose, you know, by at the bar, being involved in uh, awareness training, equality and diversity and inclusivity training, and it does help. And I do think there is a change. I know this, actually, um, Soraya may know the research evidence. Some of the research evidence says that having sort of awareness training actually isn't effective and can be counterproductive. I have to tell you that my experience at the bar is exactly the opposite. Because when I started doing it in the wake of um, uh, Lord Newberger's report before he went to the uh, Supreme Court, David Newberger, brilliant, decent person, was concerned about entry to the bar and he wrote a report about access. And so our initiative to try to have proper training at the bar about these issues of inclusivity um, flowed from that. When I started going into the lion's den, if you like, me on my own, very often the only minority ethnic person there in a room full of barristers who really frankly didn't want to be there and were very hostile and almost always asked me uh, the first question was well are you racist which I think it actually is a legitimate question and I take Karen's point completely you know don't assume in a highly racialized society that people of color can't be racist How, in fact I think it's an, uh, an act of arrogance and folly to think that we are not affected by these, these meta-social forces. But my experience was when we started, there was considerable uh, resistance and sometimes um, overt hostility. And on a couple of occasions, some of the people walked out on me, fine. Scroll forward another few years and we actually were being contacted by the members of various chambers to say, would you please come and talk in-house to us? Not at the Bar Council in Holborn, um, but actually in-house because we really want to do something. And I think there is an arc and I think there is a progression within my profession that, that I have seen. But then looking at the, the macro issues, what we are going to have to do, and it, it is actually not rocket science, it is to have an honest conversation about the nature of uh, structural racism, how it affects all parts of our community. And unless we actually understand and acknowledge that this is the truth, and this is why these outcomes keep replicating, and note, notwithstanding, on the micro level, the change in attitudes of certain individuals and people in positions of authority like barristers and judges and police officers and, and, and prison governors. Although we've had a change in that, the outcomes are still disastrously disproportionate and discriminatory. 
what are we going to do if we want to we want to try and change it we have to you can't change it unless you acknowledge it exists and my concern is we have an administration that is in denial and is suggesting that actually um it's a matter of perception and what they're doing then which is the interesting flip is they pathologize the people who are in fact on the end and suffering from that discrimination and saying you know what it's in your head and you need to have a wake-up call so that you understand if you're not really being discriminated against and i think that's a really dangerous uh, turn of events and it's something that should be challenged frankly yeah i mean i would i would add to that that um in terms of the the point about the research showing um that unconscious bias training is ineffective that is true and but what it tells you actually in the, in the detail is the factors that um make it ineffective effect essentially and you know as dexter said people have are resistant when they go there and then if they're not resistant they can often think okay i've done that now i'm cured um and it depends on what kind of training they have and who's delivering it and for what purpose and what in what context so you know we've recently seen that keir starmer's going off to unconscious bias training but you know what's the content of that going to be and so what basically i mean that's what most people will be thinking you know and so what what will that actually be he was head of the he was head of the crown prosecution service for five yeah. years and he now yeah. needs training in unconscious bias right yes. it beggars belief exactly and and you know a member of the human rights chambers a very eminent one right very eminent chamber so, um and worked with very eminent people so you know it it's really about um meaningful change you know and and what's the kind of underlying reasons for why people are engaging in these conversations and um and an understanding of um, getting to grips with the with the difficulties, the contradictions. So you know the the thing about um, Boris Johnson wanting to be wanting to be proud of Churchill and all of that. It's it's like well, why can't you see both sides? You know, why can't you see the texture and the greys and everything in between? Why why do we only teach in the university context about John Locke and Enlightenment thinkers in terms of the emergence of uh, liberal democracy? Why do we not also teach about you know the first slave rebellion and the Haitian Constitution? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know so why can we not see all the contradictions and accept all of that? And I think that's a you know I still haven't got to grips with that question i mean there's lots been written on it about you know in a very reductive terms around if you're in a position of power you're reluctant to give that up but you know if you're in government and you're especially in the current context and you know this is where social justice comes in it it really is quite baffling um that it can especially at that level. I mean, at a community level, it's complete, it's different, right? Different conversations have to be happening because there's, you know, there's not that, um, it's about different levels of education and um, different expectations. And those expectations of government are going to be higher. 
and they should be higher and they should be role modeling and leading the way and you know the likes of Keir Starmer and so you know what when are we going to hold them accountable for um, doing that modeling and um, showing us actually how you can understand these contradictions in power and um, I mean, the word privilege is often used, but you know, I prefer to use the terminology of factors of marginalization. So in terms of going back to that, you know, are people of color racist? Uh, well, people of color are extremely diverse, will have extremely diverse uh, experiences in terms of um, marginalization, but also privilege. So I know that, for example, I have had extreme privilege in relation to the education that I've had and that that has given me opportunities that others wouldn't have. So I don't really understand what, what the obstacles are in terms of us all being able to acknowledge the privileges we've had, uh, the impact of um, white supremacy, and that's not you know, just equating it with the KKK, but acknowledging that there is white supremacy and white domination through the fabric of our society and how that's impacted us uh, uh, differently and how we've benefited some of us have benefited from that and quite radically so so you know let's be able to have those conversations not just about you know the, the what the suffering is because we know that there's a lot of work already on that it's actually I want to have these other conversations so right you rather neatly teed up the next question that's oh. coming anonymously um I don't know whether it's Kia Starmer who sent this really but uh, <laughs> the question is what can white people from privileged backgrounds do to better understand racism and do something practical to address discrimination? Yeah, absolutely. And so I've put the link in the chat um, to the resource that um, my students put together, which is really meant to be very uh, accessible. And um, so it's a step-by-step -step, um, process. I'm just pulling it up here. So, you know, the first step is check our privileges um, and there's different ways you can do that, whether it's through reading, Harvard has a kind of online tool and it's really just about reflecting, right? It's just really starting with yourself. This is where I'm at. Let me reflect about myself rather than rushing out. And I know, you know, as a human rights lawyer myself, I want to rush out and save the world and all of that. But actually, let me let me listen and wait and learn about where I'm at. Once I've done that, um, and you know, there's lots of books out there or podcasts, and you choose what you want. I mean, there's Leila Saad. There's if you're in education, the work by Karlwan Bopal, um, Rena Edo Lodge, which is very kind of um, accessible my students have really found that very uh engaging to read to read um and then the second point is you know actively listen so continuing that work of really taking on board what people of color are saying about the different um experiences taking on board those reports if you're working in those in those spheres um, listening to people in your profession, if it's within the professions, avoid gaslighting that came up earlier, you know, believe people when they speak, either through reports or directly to you because it's exhausting constantly having to, you know, recount <laughs> these traumas uh, without, you know, without seeing anything coming of it. Um, or even worse, as Dexter described, you know, it being 
um, mobilized and thrown back at you and you end up being pathologized. Like why would people want to engage in that yeah, if yeah. actually they're not being listened to? So step two, actively listen. And we've in fact put in our um, in our principles and don't speak yet, you know, because listening is hard. It's very, it's, it's not easy. Once you've done that, then, you know, move on to actively learning, continuing the reading, continuing the reflecting. Um, and we've added a resource uh, list there. Um, reflect more is point four. So you can really see we're dissuading people from rushing out and doing anything just yet. Yeah. Reflect more, but very importantly with point four is sit with and breathe through any discomfort. Now there's a lot of literature on white fragility, uh, white ignorance, um, you know, uh, white privilege, and we know these are very uncomfortable conversations for, you know, white people, people in privilege, whatever terminology we want to use. And actually, it's really important for us all, but, you know, those, you know, Boris Johnson, Keir Starmer, to look at what was, what's the discomfort here? Why am I being defensive or, and not really listening and not really reflecting? What is that discomfort? Let me get to grips with it. And part of point four is, you know, when, when you feel able, participate. But if you find yourself being leaky, i.e. your discomfort is beginning to leak, then excuse yourself. And that's okay. If you're not ready yet, it's better that you do no harm and wait till you're ready. And at that point, only at that point, point five is time to act uh, by doing, by engaging in anti-racist solidarity work. Yeah. Can I just add one thing, Ed, very quickly? I, I think that's really helpful. Um, for me, the most important starting point in all of this is to, um, to understand what is race? What actually is it? We've got what, we've had about 50 participants or so, I think. If I was to, and I've done this, I've lectured and giving talks and webinars to, uh, schools, universities, institutions, professional organizations, companies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If you ask people, well, what is race? Is it real? And, the, you know, the vast majority of people, and I, I would predict the majority of people who are listening and watching today will think that it's a real thing, that it actually does exist. What we need to understand is that as a scientific concept, as a biological concept, we have known for 70 years that race doesn't exist. It's a myth. It is uh, something that has been invented. It's a social construction, which has achieved a very important purpose. And it's used and has been used historically in order to rubber stamp and justify certain uh, inequalities of power, and access to resources and the appropriation of lands in the past uh, when it was used in colonization, the use, um, the stealing of people from West Africa and the use of their labor and all of this. <clears throat> but race actually does not exist. And I um, and any of our panelists may actually have a genetic makeup which is closer to Ed's um, genetic makeup than Ed may have to someone in Wales. And we share 99.9% .9 of our DNA. And the, the 
differences between us are actually trivial. They are trivial. So what people need to understand, I think, to start off with, if we're going to have a conversation about race and racism, what is it we're having a conversation about? And the, the single best thing you could do if you are, in inverted commas, a white person, is ask yourself, what, what does white mean, actually? What is white? What is someone who is different? And when you understand that, in fact, there are no different, there are no human races, that that is a myth, and we are one common humanity. But you then ask the question, how have we been so divided? And then you start to track back and see how it emerged in the Spanish Inquisition, where they tried to uh, demonize Jewish people, and then how it really took off and went viral, the whole modern discourse and the use of race during what's called the age of discovery, colonialism, you can't discover what's already there. People have been living for thousands of years, let me say. And in the age of discovery, there was a need to justify the exploitation and the appropriation of land. And what they did was to say, well, these people are not human in the same way as we are. And that's where it starts. And, you know, if we are going to have an honest conversation, you know, I, I don't think it's baffling, really, it, that there is this reaction that I experienced after my TED talk or what um, was said about Boris Johnson and other people, because that discomfort about talking about race is actually a discomfort because what people are actually saying is, you, we need to own up and confront actually what is happening and how you have achieved this privilege. Yeah. That's the truth. Isn't do, do you know? I'm I'll be interested in what you the others think. That's the truthful conversation. And I and I think white fragility operates on two levels. One, there is that that cognitive uh, bristling and defensiveness. But it is also, and I think there's a second level of it. I think it is a defense mechanism that helps preserve the uh, asymmetrical division of power and resources. And I think it operates on a different level as well. But I'd be interested to hear what you think about that. It's only my little pet theory I've got to tell you. We're, we're running out of time. But no, we'll let, no. But we'll let both <laughs> Soraya and Karen respond to that if they want to say something before we, before we wind up, because that's a fascinating question and we could go on forever, but it was, it's brilliant. So Soraya, yeah. would you like to respond to what Dexter just said? Yes, well, one thing is to, is to recommend a book actually by um, Angela Saini uh, called Superior, which really mm. tracks, um, you know, particularly through English based in London, UCL, racial science. And so, you know, that really, really brings up the question of what becomes um, legitimized through these terminologies of science, through knowledge. And in a, in a, if, it's very much what, you know, student movements in the UK since 2015, right up until now, are trying to challenge. What is knowledge? And, you know, that it's, it's contingent upon power and who's had power to formulate it. There is no kind of knowledge that's out there beyond having been created by people uh, and institutions. So I'd say, you know, that, and that, that really goes to... Um, uh, the comment about us having those conversations. They need to have that, that, that you know, that knowledge. That, that's why Gloria Becker has written a whole book called Why Ignorance? I mean, come on, let's, mm -hmm. let's know what we're talking about. 
before we can actually, you know, in that sense, in terms of the problem, not the, the problem for those in power who are not able to move beyond uh, the reports, right? Uh, we all know what the data is, we all know what the findings are, but what's that blockage? And that blockage is about a willful ignorance, not engaging in that, uh, in that learning and in the conversations that need to be had uh, as a result of that learning. Thank you. Karen, we gave you the first word, now we've got the last word. Anything uh, to add on this? I'm just going to finish off with Dexter's bit about um, we're all one race and we're all very um, significantly tied to each other. But we also have to think that we're all humans as well and people group together for all sorts of different reasons, whether it's political affiliations, whether it's a football team or a, a musical um, affinity and people do group together and that's an, a cultural norm that we have. And part of this race issue is about those cultural norms as well. So just by giving logical explanations isn't gonna win hearts and minds about why we need to do better. And we do need to do better for the benefits of all of ourselves and um, the rest of society. Thank you. We need to wind up. That's given us plenty, plenty to think about um, today. It's just been brilliant. Um, and it's also teed up the rest of the series really well indeed. Um, just to say that tomorrow we'll be having the uh, second uh, of our series. It's on difficult histories and we've touched on that today. It takes place at 11 tomorrow with our panellists, Dr. Christiana Fryer, who's lecturer in Black British History at Goldsmiths University of London. We have Dr. Dr Tristram Hunt, the director of the Victoria and Albert Museum. We have Zyba Patel, who teaches history at Cheney School in Oxford and Olivia Wyatt, who's a researcher for the Young Historians Project. So very different perspectives there. And I think it's gonna be another fascinating discussion. Just before we end, just to say like all charities, Cumberland Lodge, we're facing difficult financial times at the moment because of the pandemic. If those of you who've been watching would like to support us, we'd be very grateful if you consider making a small donation, which you can do online via our Just Giving page. And we'll put the, uh, the link up at the end. If you would like um, to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, you can sign up on the Keep In Touch page on our website, or simply by emailing us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk and you can find out much more about our work and download our reports, etc., from our website, at, um, which is um, at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk. But let me end by first of all thanking our wonderful guests to Soraya, Dexter and Karen for such a really rich discussion. And thank you all for participating. Thank you and goodbye. Thank you.